When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 78 is Tara Lynch. We're going to be talking about her brand new debut album, Evil Enough. You're right now listening to the song Guitar Rises. From that, we're going to be talking in detail about Antidote, Banished from My Kingdom, and we'll end by listening to Unbreakable. For more information, please see TaraLynch.com. For more information about this podcast, check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you enjoy it, you can support us via Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. Hi, Tara Lynch here. Hi, Tara. It's Mark. Are you ready to do this? I'm ready. Well, let's start. I will have played a little bit of Guitar Arises as an example of one of your instrumentals. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, it seems like the basis of your musicianship is not first and foremost having melodies going through your heads. It's sitting down and shredding. But tell me, that's just the impression I'm getting. And I know that when you tell the story at the beginning of your career, it's all, when I was eight, I started playing around on a guitar like this. And But then it's been many years before that came to making an album. Can you kind of connect the dots here? Yeah, Absolutely. So, yeah, I started playing when I was around 11 years old. I had an older brother. He's about five and a half years older, and he played acoustic guitar and, and some electric guitar. And I've always been into music since I, as long as I can remember, many years before that even, uh, when I was a little little kid. And so I always wanted to play an instrument and actually make music because I have a really good ear. So he wouldn't let me touch his guitars because he was, you know, older, and he thought I would break them, and, well... When he left the house, I finally got up the nerve by the time I was around 11 to play him anyway. And after catching me doing it and hearing what I was doing, he freaked out and said, oh, my God, just keep it and went and got himself another one. So I never put it down since. I've been playing ever since. And, you know, when I was a teenager and stuff, I played in some bands and stuff, played around town a little bit, you know, parties and stuff, nothing major. And then pretty much did it as a hobby for many years until I finally decided to go ahead and share it with the world. By doing it as a hobby, do you mean just kind of playing it on your own and practicing a lot or putting songs together? Like, are some of the songs in this album a number of years old or are they all pretty recent? I literally would just play at home and keep it all to myself. <laughs> and I have a lot of professional friends. You know, these guys on my albums, are all, they're all my personal friends. So living in Los Angeles for all these years, obviously, you meet a lot of these people and, and you meet one, you meet another one and so on and so on. And so... You know, you end up celebrating holidays together and things like that at each other's homes and you end up, you know, really forging friendships. And they all knew that I played, but they didn't know how serious I was about it. But they knew I played and they knew well enough that, you know, if I ever did decide to get around making a record, they've all told me, you know, at one point or another, I totally want to be involved. So it was very easy for me when I did decide to finally do this to just call them up and say, guess what I'm doing? And, you know, do you want to go ahead and play on the record? I'm writing everything. I mean, there's, you're playing what I write. And every one of them was like, heck yes, of course. So that was that. So it really wasn't any great feat to throw it together. I mean, it was really what's just odd is that a lot of my personal friends are guys like this. So that's what makes it weird, I guess, to everybody. But that's really the simplicity of it. It's just a phone call and like, hey, <laughs> I'm making a record. 
Well, it looks like from your website that you've taken lessons, not just on guitar, but you know that you have your bass player Bjorn Englin playing on some of these tracks. Yeah, he played with Ingvay Malmsteen for like uh-huh. five or six years. He's great. Bjorn's been a friend of mine for years, you know, and again, I didn't walk around going, I am also a musician. I am a guitarist. I can do this too. I, I'm just not that kind of person. I don't brag, boast or anything. I really don't talk about it. They just know me as Tara, and Tara is uh, really into the music. And so I decided one day, since Ingve Malmsteen's Rising Force, that's his first record, I think is one of the greatest records of all time. I love that album, and I can play it on guitar already. So I don't know. I just felt like, you know what? I'd really like to learn this album on bass. So I called Bjorn, and I said, hey, I think I'd like to study with you a bit. Come on over and, and maybe give me a lesson, right? So he comes over. And he thinks I've never picked up a bass before. And he starts teaching me about what a bass is. And I'm like cracking up. I don't say anything. I let him go. And then finally, I kind of say, he finally gets to the point where he's like, okay, well, so what, what is it that you want to learn? Like the basics or whatever. And I said, well, I'd like you to teach me Van Malenstein's Rising Force record on bass from start to finish. That's what I'd like to learn. So it's not bass lessons. It's basically having him teach me, you know, these tracks. So call it a lesson if you want, but you know, I mean, I already played the instrument. So he was just like, this is a joke. And I'm like, no, it's not a joke. And he's like, oh my God, you're serious. I'm like, yeah. And so that was it. He just taught me the record from start to finish. So that was really fun. <laughs> so starting as a sitting at home, working on scales for hours at a time, that, that kind of thing and, and learning things off records. So tell us about the link between that and then actually getting a whole full arrangement fleshed out. So we're going to listen to Antidote, the single from the album first which has got quite a bit of structure to it. I mean, I often feel like a lot of the initial writing on for metal is, is it's all modal chords, right? It's not, you're not playing major, you're not playing minor necessarily. It's the one and the five. So it's almost like writing a bass part and play this, move it up two frets, move it down one fret. There you go. There's a verse like there's, <laughs> but then actually taking that kind of very easy entry point to this kind of songwriting. And as, as folks will hear this antidote in particular, it's got a pretty long introduction where you're kind of writing it like you're writing a guitar instrumental, like guitar arises, but then it becomes this full fleshed out song. Can you say something about how you go about writing a whole song, writing an arrangement like this? First, I'm going to tell you that I don't read music. And I don't actually write it down because I can't. I play completely by ear. And that's just part of being self-taught. I literally play what I hear. So when you say things like I sit around practicing scales and stuff like that, really all I'm doing is playing the stuff that I've heard that I like to hear and I'd like to play too. So I can't even tell you what the scales are called. I can't tell you what key I'm in. It's a very unusual situation. So when I sit down to write something like Antidote, I have this, you know, recording system called Logic. Everybody's familiar with Pro Tools, Logic, things like that. And I use Logic and I just start recording straight in from my brain, whatever I'm thinking or feeling, just, I start just playing right into the machine and recording it like that until I have a full song. I don't have anything that's formulaic. I don't have any pattern structure I like to use all the time. I don't have anything going on like that. I really just start playing it in. So the long intro is the long intro because of one reason only. It sounded good to me. That's it. I just liked it. That's what I was feeling. I was feeling like it needed that that build before the song itself began with the lyrics and everything. So as far as the arrangement is concerned, I just didn't feel like singing until about a minute and a half into the song. Do you want to briefly say what the song is about before we play it, and then we'll talk about the details? Absolutely. The song Antidote is about, 
if you think about the definition of what an antidote is, it's basically something that, you know, relieves or cures what ails you. And when the man I'm closest to hurts me so much, my antidote turned out to be other men.
which you could just have easily said the character of the protagonist in this song that is there rather than confessing it as a as a personal story. It is a personal story. Tell me more about then, since we're talking about the, the story here. I guess it's interesting to me, I'm not really that versed in metal. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, so that was it was on the radio all the time, and I've certainly spent a lot of time with the old Blue Oyster Cult and Deep Purple and Zeppelin and sort of the roots of metal, you know, familiar with Yngwie Malmsteen and folks like that, but haven't spent a, a whole lot of time with it. The connection between the musicianship, on the one hand, and basically the fashion, the moods, you know, that are associated with that, of this yeah. certain form of dress. And in many ways, it seems very arbitrary to me. And there are plenty of, like, I just interviewed Steve Hackett. He plays solos that are quite a bit like, you know, what we heard on Guitar Rising in some of his. But since he, you know, was from more of the prog tradition, there's, there's, but by the time we get to here, these are songs about personal relationships. These are songs, they're not, they're not about devil worship or whatever kind of rebellion that the 1981 metalheads were, were complaining about. You know, this is really cool to have. It's definitely metal. It's definitely furious, but it's kind of a complicated relationship song. And part of it is aimed at the husband character. And then part of it is you'll never be mine is aimed at the other man, the antidote that there's a little bit of shifting in, in narrative. Here. I say it like it is. I don't sugarcoat anything. I have absolutely zero shame, embarrassment. I don't worry about anybody's feelings. I think art is a forum in which you can express anything you want, no matter what. And there's no expense involved because it's art. So if I was going to make a record and I was going to write all the music and the words for this record, it was basically going to be like giving birth to a child. I have two children. Okay. And it's just like my children. I mean, basically, they are you. So having said that, I can't write about witches and wizards and, and wars and, you know, uh, slide it in right to the top and all that goofy stuff. I, I don't, I don't knock any of it. I'm a big fan of all that stuff. I love Iron Maiden and I love Dio and I love Ozzy and a lot of those lyrics are very fantastical and, and wonderful and great, you know, escapes from reality, but I can only do reality. That's, that's all I can do personally. So this album is my autobiography. It's my reality. Every song has something to do with people, person, a personality type, whatever's going on in my life, whatever I've had to deal with. I wrote about it. My husband gets thrown under the bus and, and run over on this record and backed over again and run over again and backed over again. <laughs> That's his problem, not mine. <laughs> Am I still, though, detecting, even though there's, you know, as you say, just a tell-like-it-is sort of flavor, I don't know if it's an ambivalence or irony or something, but when you're, like, calling this the antidote, clearly it's actually, as you spell it out, well, it really wasn't the antidote. You know, it was a temporary fix. Comparing this to all the songs that were like, love is the drug, that it seems like it wasn't the antidote. It wasn't the thing that fixed you up. It was the thing that provided a temporary distraction or something, but eventually you had to deal with the actual issue. Exactly. There's a lyric in the song that really defines the whole the whole track, if you really think about it. And with respect to the antidote, there's a line called that says, use you using me. And that's what's going on when people hook up and they sort of cling to each other because they've got whatever they've got going on in their lives, but it's really nothing that's going to work out long term. And it's really not a real thing that's going to last forever. It's not, you know, a new marriage or anything like that. It's basically two people using each other to get over whatever it is that's causing them to need this antidote. So if you're thinking about writing this story as a movie, probably the tone of the movie that would come to mind is not 
the thing that is associated with Iron Man, right? It's kind of a, it's a domestic drama, but yet we have, it's still, I won't say furious. It's not like so the second song we're going to listen to is Banished from My Kingdom. And that one is straightforwardly a, you know, fuck you kind of song. This one is not. Oh yeah. That's a very angry track. Yeah. This one is not, but it still has, you know, the kind of image you know, just like you have in the video and, and on your album cover of, you know, their fireballs bursting around you or something, which is... And a bunch of men at my feet, yes, <laughs> in hell. In hell, okay. How, I mean, is that kind of just, you're playing with the, the convention and the tradition that, you know, that I'm a metal player and so this is going to go with this and, or do you actually sort of think in those terms? <laughs> no, that album cover, first of all, I had Niels Lozauer take that picture, okay? Uh-huh. And we were doing all kinds of different things in this photo session. And again, everything comes from my heart, my mind, my thought process, my concept. And so, again, this is my baby. And I said, Neil, do me a favor and humor me. I know this isn't really on the agenda, but I'm going to do this pose. And I just want you to shoot this and just just go with it. And so I started standing there in a prayer pose and he just started clicking away. And he got this great shot. And what was that about? What's the prayer? And I'm like, you know what? I feel like my whole life has been basically a prayer in hell because I keep struggling with one thing or another. And this album is about all of these struggles with, you know, different folks and stuff like that, relationships and such. And so I feel like I'm always standing there sort of in a purgatory stance, contemplating. I'm like forever contemplating. So when I'm standing there praying on my record cover, I'm I'm basically contemplating, do I just jump in with these guys down there and, and just call it a day or, or do I just, do I go up? What do I do? I'm just going to stand here and think about it pretty much forever because I kind of like both places. Well, and that image that, you know, that goes with heavy metal lead singing kind of, it does have an almost religious feeling to it that you're, you're emphasizing the difference between the audience and the performer by having, you know, the, it's very theatrical, bright spotlights, you got your smoke machines, you got your lasers, whatever, and really elevating, you know, so that that really goes with the kind of piercing lead vocal that generally is associated with metal that, that you do pretty darn well of just this kind of high priest blaring in a very uh, confident way, even when you're expressing self-criticism and irony and... <laughs> You know, some stuff that is not the subject matter of a religious screed, say. Religion has absolutely nothing to do with my record. My, I don't have anything to do with religion in my life. That's just not a part of who I am. But I get what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's really more of a metaphor yep. for what's going on. I mean, that's, that's basically what the album cover is. It's a metaphor for the fact that I am always standing on the brink of jumping in or not jumping in. Let's get a little more into the arrangement here. You know, I love the intro with that. So this is not Bjorn doing bass. This is uh, Phil Susan. No, this is Vinny Apathy on drums and Phil Susan on bass. And together they make such a beautiful rhythm team. And I'll tell you, I extended the intro because of those guys. Uh, the intro was, I want to say about 30 seconds shorter than that. But when we went into the studio to record and they started playing the intro, we doubled it because it was so magnificent. I just loved the sound of, of the drums and then the bass kicking in and then the guitar kicking in. It was just, originally, it was just going to be the bass and the drums and the guitar was just going to right right from the start. But because they sounded so great together, just the two of them in the intro, before I recorded the guitar part, I said, let's just, you know, it was Brent or, or me, one, one of us. Brent is my producer and he's fantastic. You know, I think together we decided to go ahead and extend that a bit. 
Uh, it was probably his suggestion because he comes up with the most brilliant suggestions like that. So that's why it's a little longer than you would normally expect. Yeah, the two of them together are just fantastic. And uh, that was magical. I remember this, the hair standing up on the back of my neck when they started. I was just like, whoa. <laughs> it sounded incredible. If you could have been there, I mean, really, just wow. Yeah, well, there's so many elements. Just that initial, the two of them playing together with that. Do you know if he's picking the bass on that or is he playing with his fingers? On that particular track, you know, it's funny because he does both. And on that particular track, I think he's using his fingers. Yeah, it's hard to get that kind of articulation, you know, in on a bass, which is usually compressed to hell. So everything sounds just like, but to actually have, you know, have that come out that fluidly. The whole song is just showing off drums left and right. Like every, every chorus, it's like a duet between the vocal and the drums, pretty much. And to do, it's like Keith Moon. Not just because he's my friend, but Vinny is my favorite drummer of all time. Always has been. Since even before I met him, since I was a kid, you know, I, I'll never forget when I first heard him. I, I was just like, wow. You know, everybody focuses on people like Neil Peart and, you know, guys like that that really shred and do all of these acrobatics and stuff. And that's all great, too. And I love it. But what Vinny has that no other drummer has that I've ever heard of in my life is a particular sway. He's got a way that he hits. He's got a way that he moves from beat to beat that is unlike any other drummer I've ever heard. It's so sexy and it's so powerful. And that's the only thing I could possibly hear in my head when I'm writing these tracks. Those are the drums. You know, when you write music, when I write music, okay, I don't know about anybody else. When I write music, I literally can hear it in my head and I cast it already. I think, okay, who, which style would I want to hear? And Vinny's drums are all I can hear in my head. If I'm ever going to have anybody else sing one of my tracks, Mark Bowles is the only vocal I have in my head. So these are the guys I called for that reason. When I wrote the two songs that Mark sings on, I literally wrote them with his voice in my head singing them, not mine. I mean, if you have access to that talent, of course you, you want to use it. But given how strong your vocals are, the fact that you had him sing the first vocal track and the last vocal track on there uh, was an interesting choice. <laughs> because I'm confident. Because Mark is Mark and, and I'm me. And there's a major difference. We do not sound alike. And there's no threat or harm in having him open and close the record. He's a great friend of mine. He's phenomenally talented. He did beautiful justice to those tracks. And that's where they fit when I decided the order of the record. I don't mind having my wonderful friend opening the door and then closing it. I have no problem with that. Now, I close it at the end because... It's a feckless lock at the very end. It's the guitar that's dominating the whole album. So you could have had a guest vocalist for every other track and it wouldn't have mattered. Like it's still driven by that. And that was incredibly important to me too, because that's really my main instrument. I've never, I, I did not intend to sing on this record in the first place. I really didn't. I was going to have Mark sing all the vocal tracks, but Vinny and Phil and Brent practically gave me a back alley thug beating verbally about why I should sing my own tracks after they heard me sing the demos, because when I do my songs, like I said, I write them all myself. I play all the instruments at home and record it all into my system at home. I give my guys all a demo to listen to, and it's like a completed song. And I do the vocals and everything. And I'm like, okay, here's the song. Listen to it, learn it. And then we get together to record. That's basically the process. Well, when they heard the vocals on Banish from My Kingdom, I came to the studio to meet up with them at the steakhouse to record, to record that track. And they're like, 
please tell me you're singing this. And I thought Brent put him up to it and I was getting punked. And they were dead serious. And they kept harping on me about it for literally hours. And I'm like, you guys aren't even joking. You're not even, this isn't even a joke. You actually think I should sing this stuff? And they're like, you have an amazing voice. Why aren't you singing this? And I'm like, eh, I kind of like guys' voices in metal. I'm not really a huge fan of the, it's only a couple of ladies in metal that I can stand to listen to, quite frankly. And so I'm like, I don't know, it kind of sounds goofy. And they're like, no, 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 you have to do this. I, so I, I agreed to record the vocals for Banished with Brent producing. And I said, if it sounds good in the end, then I'll go ahead and sing the rest of them. And that's what happened. Well, we'll get to that one in a second. Yeah, that, that one definitely lyrically seems like it should be a woman at least singing. <laughs> it, it just it would be much more a much meaner song in some ways. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Before we get rid of Antidote here, let me play the guitar solo from the middle. I mean, you've already played a very blistering guitar solo before the first word even enters the picture. But here's what happens in the, in the middle. So I just like the fact that that is really so conservative and melodic compared to even just the little guitar blips. I suppose that when you have your main rhythm part, I'm saying with air quotes, is da 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 is already like a very <laughs> hyperactive thing, then you better play it like a cello when you're doing the actual solo. <laughs> Although that didn't stop you earlier in the song from doing a very fast one over the same thing. You know, again, there's no plotting and planning here. I just play what I think sounds right that honors the song. So the goal isn't to shred everywhere because that's not, I, I you know, it's funny. Everybody keeps calling me a shredder and that, that really blows my mind because when I hear the word shredder, I think Paul Gilbert, I think John Petrucci, I think Ingve Malmsteen, I think Vinnie Moore, Tony McAlpine, uh, Steve Vai, you know, guys like that that do a lot of that stuff throughout every song. And some of that stuff is my favorite music of all time, being a musician, of course. But I also love Black Sabbath. I also love Megadeth. They shred a little bit there, too. You know, I, I love it. I love the mixture of things. For me, when I write my music, it's not about getting in as much shred as I can get in because there's actually no goal of getting any shred in. I literally play what I feel fits the part the best. Sure, and it leaves more room for overdubbing as well you know whether like in this song where you have a couple different distinct riffs that are being layered on as the song starts or uh, as we're going to hear more in Banish from my kingdom that you've got a lot more kind of the i always think of the band boston just because you know they were probably the most popular thing with the harmonized lead guitars you know that becomes or if you're into metal it would be iron maiden okay <laughs> yeah well let's get to that uh banished from my kingdom so give us the intro to the song here and then we'll play it and then we'll talk more well basically banished from my kingdom is a story about a friendship that wasn't really a friendship. It was uh, a friendship for over 30 years with a particular individual who was like a sister to me, who uh, I considered like a sister to me. And at the end of the day, her uh, true colors came out and I realized that she was not as invested in the relationship as I was and that she was basically uh, using me. And she always had a bit of a jealous streak. That's since we were kids, even at the age of 12. And, you know, there would be uh, some sisterly arguments about that throughout the years. And I thought by the time we were all grown up and had our own kids, maybe that stuff would stop. But unfortunately, it didn't. So she was basically consumed by her envy, literally. 
And at this point, I realized, you know what? It's just not worth it anymore. So she was banished from my kingdom. Again, that's metaphorically speaking. She's out of my life.
slower, majestic one. Again, the very confident theatrical metal thing. Can you say a little, a little bit more about how these arrangements came together? You know, you've got those parallel harmonies right at the beginning there, the Iron Maiden-esque things. What I had there is what I call my stacks. I stack my harmonies. You call them overdubbing. Everybody else calls it overdubbing, but I like to refer to them as my stacks. I basically record each one, one after the other after the other. So you've got your low, your middle, your high, you've got a harmony or maybe an octave, something like that, you know, depending on the track. So this song obviously has got my uh, my harmony stacks going. It's also a very sad melody because it's a very sad story. And it's also a very angry story. So that's basically going to rely very heavily on the lyric, this particular track. But of course, my guitar work is going to shine as it always does, because I sing with the guitar just as much as I sing with my voice in every song I do. My voice comes out two ways, whether it's through my throat or a guitar. That explains a lot why you'd be prone in places like here and in the previous songs, guitar solo, that you're doing very singable guitar lines. They're identifiable melodies. They might be a little weird harmonically, especially in the way that you're you're stacking on there. But it's a separate thing from the instrumental the head of the song. And then now I'm going to take a little time out and do a little shredding there. But, you know, it's, it's definitely, that's just icing on the cake as opposed to the primary melodies of the song. Yeah. When I, as you say, shred, that's really because at that moment, I'm feeling like there's usually a build that leads to that. And then I'm just expressing like an outburst, what would be an angry outburst verbally. But instead, I'm doing it on the guitar. It's all about my feelings. So is it pretty much the same way where you decide to have backing vocals and where you don't, that it's just a matter of just like you do the stacking and see what's right? Exactly. There's no template. There's no formula of any kind for any of my tracks. That's why no two are like. You're basically, anytime you have background vocals, it's because it seems right here. It seems right to emphasize this part because of what I'm saying or what I'm doing. One place where I thought that was especially... uh, Interesting, let me just play, so it's the right before the second chorus, I think. You were consumed. I'm yelling at her, like, my voice alone isn't enough. I have to have my backing vocal saying it too. That you then jump up for the By Your Envy, so that it's, you take the place where the background vocal was, even just an engineering feat to kind of have the fact that you're taking over the, in fact, I've, I've had this problem. I remember I, I was backing somebody in a band where I was playing bass and he was the singer songwriter and, you know, I'd be doing a high harmony to him. And then he'd just decide very unpredictably to just jump up, you know, and basically sing the high harmony. And then I was like, what do I do? Do I sing in unison with him? Do I stop singing? I would often just go to a lower harmony, which he, he hated. <laughs> that, that, you know, I feel the need to beatlesque it out or something like, but in a recording environment, of course, it's much easier that you can, you know, make the background vocal sound, put enough reverb on it that it's definitely, no, it's not that the background vocal is taking over the lead, even though you're singing at the same pitch, it's the lower part is going up. Yeah. And the backing is going away. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as, you know, when we perform the song live, they just know to sing, you were consumed, and then just stop. I say, you know, I'm singing the lead. Do you have female backing vocals that can do this? or No, the guys will be doing it. Okay, so they're probably doing it either an octave lower or a, a little falsetto that doesn't sound anything like, you know, when you're doing that. Live is live. Recording is recording. Yep. If live sounded exactly identical to the recording, then why play live? 
at all. So it sounds like you, you had these all very mapped out. You know, of course, the rhythm section is going to do what the rhythm section is going to do. And they're super talented. And I'm guessing you were not telling them <laughs> very much what to play from minute to minute. But what, how is the production? What is Brent adding to this in terms of is he making structural suggestions, cut that shorter or, or just making sure the recording sounds clean? Oh, all of the above. All of the above. He does exactly what a producer does, but he also does what a sound engineer does. I call him the ears of steel. This guy's got better ears than anybody I've ever known in my life. My God, I'd have him produce every album I did till I was dead. He's Nobody has ears like this guy. Unbelievable. The things that he hears, his attention span, his attention to detail is extraordinary. He catches things that the artist is never going to catch. And it's something that could happen in a fraction of a second that nobody would ever catch. But he'll catch it. He'll find that needle in a haystack. And he'll say, you know what? Maybe we ought to change this one note. Or he'll say, maybe we should double this section. Or why don't we move this section down here? He'll suggest arrangement changes. He'll suggest things. Sometimes I'll take those suggestions. And sometimes I'll say, no, this is how I hear it in my head. This is how it's got to be. And we work extremely well together like that. Because I come to him with a fully written song. So I don't come to him with just like a, a riff. And then we write together. I write everything. So he doesn't change much. But he'll certainly make a suggestion in terms of moving something from here to there or swapping a part from one end to the other or saying, we need another part here. And then, oh, for example, there's a song on the record called Cringeworthy. And that's a very slow melodic track. And then, uh, you know, he's like, we need some sort of like a bridge, something that something that happened with the solo or something like that. So I said, OK. So I took it home and I wrote that whole bridge and solo section, brought it back to him the next day. And, you know, so he makes the suggestion. I go and I write it and then we record it. Speaking of bridges, let, let's talk about the bridge for this one. Let me just play a little bit of it. Yeah, so you change up the rhythm quite a bit. Yeah, that's my left turn, I call it. A lot of my songs, probably all of them, at some point have what's called a left turn, where I just do something completely wacky different from the whole rest of the track. And then I sink right back into the track the way it was. That's something that I always do, because I've always enjoyed those, as I call them, left turns in everybody else's music that I've really been a fan of. So that is something I tend to do naturally. And that's basically the left turn in that particular track. Well, and I like that you prepare that really right at the beginning. So you've got your big pompous intro riff, and then between that and the actual verse, just there's just like a six second thing where you establish that where you, you know, the basic rhythm that you end up doing in the bridge and then in the end of the song with different chords, you know, is established right from the start. So it doesn't sound like it's coming out of nowhere. Oh, and then here's, I want to definitely give Brent where credit's due. In that particular section, there's a melodic guitar that's doing arpeggiated chords there. So I was, when I wrote it, I was just playing the chords straight out. He said, you know, why don't you just play it arpeggiated just from each note in each chord? And I thought that was a beautiful suggestion instead of just playing the chord straight through. It gave it so much more texture. These are the suggestions that, you know, he makes as a producer that really enhance what I've written. And that's a great example right there that I wanted to make sure I talked about because it really does color the song so much more. A lot of the transitions between the sections, there was one in particular about 345. 
just the little subtle, you know, that you've got, let's take the guitar to kind of scoop everything up and give a little burst of energy to get us into the next part. Well, that's just, again, that's just something I do naturally. I, on transitions, I think is incredibly important because when you don't do that, you end up with something that's very monotonous. Well, you could just let the drums do it, is, is what people often do. It's just the drum fill carries you to the next part. We don't need to... <laughs> well, exactly. But in my case, if you really pay attention, you'll see that I'm really playing along with a lot of these fills. I really enjoy... That's the thing. I'm a melodic person and I'm a guitarist, but I really do enjoy the percussive aspect of things. And so I like to join in that game and fill in right along with those drums, you know? So is that a lot of the difference between your initial demos and the final product is because, well, the drummer has brought in his mojo, and then you feel like, no, I have to play additionally, throw in more licks. That's why I pick my drummers very carefully, because a drummer is going to make or break a track. People don't give enough kudos to the drummer. You write a song, okay? And and you write it. It's, it's done. It's a song. But... If it's played with the drumbeat of a polka versus the drumbeat of a metal song versus the drumbeat of a country song, let's say, you know, if you put a blues vibe or something like that, you're going to end up with a very different sounding track. You have to make sure that, A, you have the right drummer for the song you wrote, very important, and that, B, that drummer is going to, because you know that drummer style that you cast for the particular track, you know they're going to provide really fantastic fills and transitions that you're going to be able to write to and enhance the song even more. So I do the demos and I have my demo drums. Vinny goes and records the song. You know, we go into the studio and he does his drums and I take those back with me sometimes. This is one of the ways we do it and listen to them. And I will change certain guitar parts to go along with certain fills. So just as a mechanical matter, are, since you have the Logic version down, are you using that as the basic click track and having the musicians play along with some guide? Are you doing like the rhythm section live together? Or are you having the drums play by themselves to a click? Or It depends. We've done it all different ways. You know, we've done it in pieces and we've done it together. So it just depends on the track. But basically... They get the demo, again, they listen to it, they learn it, and then we go into the studio together. And whether it's multiple musicians or one that day, you know, whatever whatever we uh, have decided to do in terms of structure, it gets done that way. And basically, they go ahead and put their own mojo on it, and I'll play along with it, or take it back and play along with it or change things based on what they've done. Like, oh my God, this is such a great fill. And the way I wrote this transition is better enhanced by that fill. Let me just change the rhythmic way I'm playing it to fit that better. I'll make changes like that after the fact. Now, I haven't surveyed all of your songs with this in mind, but the way that this song stops and the way that even uh, the first song, Antidote, stops, you know, there's not a lot of, it just stops, they just stop dead. (laughs) This one in particular. Some of them do. Some of them stop dead. Some of them end with laughter. Some of them fade out. I don't have, again, any kind of formulaic ending for my songs. It's whatever fits the song and the mood and the tone of the track best. So this one has a very abrupt ending because that's exactly what happened to that friendship. The last line is, Birdie, you have been dismissed. That's it. And now you're burning in hell. And then you have a, like a, you know, a 10 minute garbage. I don't, I don't know if this is the standard term. One of my drummers used to call it a garbage ending where you have, where you hit the last note and it goes, you know, and you just, and then everybody hits together. Those sort of dramatic. Do you guys do that, that kind of thing live ever? Or you just. No, I mean, we pretty much, 
we pretty much do what you hear on the record live in terms of the way we end the track, uh-huh. because I think the, en- the ending is incredibly important. Now, there may be a track or two where we're going to jam on it a little longer. You know, we'll extend it a bit. For example, the end of Cringeworthy definitely deserves a jam at the end. So we know we're going to do that, which is not on the record. But live, we're going to definitely jam that out a little bit more at the end. So one of the things that threw me for a loop, so I, I saw you had Tony McAlpine play a couple of, uh, just a couple keyboard solos here and there. So is he in your live band playing keyboards throughout? Absolutely. Um, you know, Tony's a solo artist and he does his own albums and his own tours, of course. So with respect to that, whenever he's available, if I have dates booked that he's available for, he is my touring keyboardist. Yes. You know, obviously he's a phenomenal player. I have mixed feelings as a, I think a lot of guitar-oriented units have something against the aggressive use of keyboards in that way because, you know, the power of a guitar, I guess that's why terms like shredding are used, you know, that it's very distorted and stuff. And here's a keyboard, which it's doing similar kind of acrobatic things, but it's got a, such a different tone to it, even though, you know, this is engineered to match up very well, so when it answers you, but... Is that heresy within heavy metal to have keyboard like this, or is that... Guess who doesn't care? There are no rules. There are no rules. Guess what? When I wrote these songs, I said to myself, I want a keyboard solo in these two tracks, Enigmatic and Exit the Warrior. They're both instrumental (laughs) tracks. They're both more progressive than the other tracks. And I want to hear keyboard solos in these two tracks. And by the way, they're the only two tracks on the record with a keyboard solo. No other song out of... Two out of ten songs on the record have keyboard solos. That's it. And who better to play them than my friend Tony? I mean, my God. If you know him as a guitarist, you've you've also got to know that he's been classically trained as a pianist since he was like four years old. The guy is phenomenal on the keys as much as he is on the guitar. He's incredible. And I have to be the only one playing guitar on this whole record. And the reason for that is because I'm new to everybody. I'm a woman. And I don't want them thinking that if I have anybody else playing guitar on this record, like Tony, they're going to think, well, he's doing it the whole time. And I'm probably just playing chords. That's what people are going to think. And I'm sorry, but I didn't work my ass off all these years coming up with my own sound and my own delivery for it to be ignored and thought of as somebody else's. So I've got other guitarists on this record. Brent Woods is a guitarist. He plays with Vince Neil, Sebastian Bach, John Waite. I mean, the guy is great. He plays with Chevy Metal, with the Foo Fighter guys. He's a phenomenal guitarist. But he's not playing guitar on this record. He's doing backing vocals, and he's playing some synths, and he's producing it, but no guitar. So for Tony, I said, listen, you know, I would just love to have you do a couple of keyboard solos on this record, but no guitars. And he was like, sure, very happy to do it. He's in the antidote video. You know, he's, he's happy to be a part of the whole thing. He's wonderful. But he's like family to me. So um, that was a, a real easy thing to do. And as far as the keyboard solo is concerned, I gave him my leads. And I said, play with me in the beginning and end of these leads. And then just fill it up with what goes from your heart, you know. But there are duets. 
So if you listen to, uh, you know, Exit the Warrior and Enigmatic, you might be able to peel it apart with your ears, but you'll hear that it's guitar and keys and then the keys take over and then the guitar joins again and, you know, we're duetting again out of the uh, keyboard solo in both tracks. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting since you're, you know, playing against yourself the rest of the time. That, yep. <laughs> you know, just here, there's no extra, you know, saxophone in this one other song or violin in this other song. Like, th- this is the exception. Which, and then, you know, bringing in the uh, the prog influence there and the you know, how he's comparing to this Steve Hackett style. Like, yeah, of course, there's plenty of, that's where keyboard, that kind of keyboard solo is at home. And those, you know, even back to Deep Purple and their heavy keyboard stuff often distorted to make it sound like a guitar. Speaking of presenting yourself, it seems like a lot of the, the buzz you were able, the fact that we're in the in the years of YouTube means that even though you're saying that shredding is not my focus, I don't know why people think I'm a shredder. The fact that, you know, you could show somebody a 20 second clip of you playing really fast and they're going to go, wow, like that's an immediate hook. That's an immediate selling point to try to get them to like, then actually come and listen to a whole song and and see, you know, the whole rest of it. Before this album was coming out, I guess I've just I've never known of a first album to be as well prepared in its release in terms of the buzz and the amount of you know Facebook followers and things that you're getting. Not because you'd released a single six months ago and had a crazy video for it. Can you say something about that organic way of building a following there? Yeah, I mean basically I started posting videos and really I, I, I rely more heavily on Facebook than even YouTube. But I created a Facebook page and I started posting like little 20, 25 uh, second, you know, 45 second, maybe a minute long, little, little snippet videos of me writing this album. And I did that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't want anyone to dispute the fact that I wrote this album because I did. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ever take credit for my babies because I made them myself. (laughs) Secondly, so there's your proof. Okay. All along the way, you've got me sitting there writing right there in front of you, right in your face. Secondly, I really recognize technology and I really recognize society and what's going on these days. And people are so sick of manufactured fluff. So when you see these videos, I don't look particularly attractive. I didn't go out of my way to do my hair and my makeup. I didn't go out of my way to wear anything fancy or, or you know, put on any kind of quote, heavy metal uniform of any kind. I'm sitting there in tank tops, athletic clothes, maybe even a dress, quite frankly. Okay. A t-shirt, like no big deal because that's who I am. And so what you're getting is reality from the start. And I think people really embrace that because also I'm, I'm not a kid. I'm in my forties and that's no secret either. Everywhere you look, if you read about me, I say I've been playing guitar for over 35 years. Well, I don't know anybody in a diaper who does that. I'm just saying, you know, clearly I'm in my 40s. And so the fact that I'm in my 40s and the fact that I'm not putting on, um, you know, leather studs and God knows what just to get on a camera in front of people when I don't put some big giant backdrop behind me or anything. I'm sitting here at, at home in my studio, which, you know, provides a great backdrop anyway, because I have quite an impressive guitar collection. I will say so myself. But, you know, the fact that I'm just like, hey, so I'm here writing this song uh, here. You can hear some of it. And then I play and then video out. Done. (laughs) I put up several of those that really got people's attention. I mean, gosh, one of them where I'm sitting there in a dress. I think it was a piece of feckless loft that I posted. It's got like over half a million views. It definitely got passed around on Facebook. 
And it just started from there. People just started joining my page. The greatest thing that happened is all the sharing. People share, 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 share. And thank goodness for that, because when they do that, it shows up on somebody else's timeline and they look at it and go, holy crap, this is cool. And then they share it with their friends and then their friends and so on and so on. And so that's why um, you mentioned uh, earlier to me a video that, you know, where I mentioned I have, I don't know, 35,000 Facebook followers. And yeah, that was true at the time. But at this point, it's near 100,000. I think the last count I saw was something like 93,000 on that page. And I still continue to post all the time and keep that going. And that alone has been really useful in terms of building the following. Do you have any sense yet with the album now released, whether that fandom translates into actual record sales? Absolutely. A lot of people have ordered physical CDs from my website. And I know that there's been downloads on, uh, you know, all the stores. I know that my distributor, you know, asked for more uh, units because they ran out. So yeah, it's definitely selling. But having said that, it's selling as much as anything sells these days. And anyone in the music business knows that you're not going to make any money off of selling a record. You have to tour because, you know, everything gets streamed and passed around and it's just impossible anymore to really sell a record. So the fact that I've been able to sell as much as I have without ever having toured on this album, without ever having uh, recorded an album prior, other than being a guest on other people's albums, that's a whole separate thing. It's pretty great, I think. I'm really happy about the response I've been getting and really surprised at the level of response I've been getting and I'm continuing to get every day. It's just building and building and it's wonderful. And now what we're doing is preparing to uh, bring the show to everybody live and getting all our ducks in a row and uh, we're planning dates right now as we speak and soon I'll be releasing uh, the first set of tour dates. Well, I'm glad you've given the positive spin on that because we're going to end with a song that makes it sound like you've got a lot of negative stuff over the internet. Unbreakable, at least. Or is this aimed at a specific person rather than at random haters? You know what? That song is aimed at, it's an open letter to the trolls of society. Anybody that tries to bring anybody else down because they're feeling like crap about themselves and... Of course, being a female and doing what I do, there are certain people who have a problem with jealousy. I can think of a couple of males that are upset over the fact that maybe they haven't been able to uh, get as far because they feel like the only reason why maybe I'm getting as far as I am is because I'm female. Or, you know, as opposed to maybe my work is just that good for a male or a female. So whatever the case is, I don't really care. There are people that are going to say things negatively to everybody and anybody in any kind of a celebrity capacity just because they're upset that they're not that person. And this is basically me saying, do what you're going to do. Say what you're going to say. I'd actually have to care about what you say for it to matter. And I don't. And that's because I'm unbreakable. Well, thanks so much for talking with me. I I hope that this continues to sell well and that the tour goes well. It's a very damn tight, damn slick album. This was a good choice in terms of introducing heavy metal, perhaps to folks that don't have a background in that, I think. (laughs) That's great. Thank you. That's good to hear. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Take care.
Thanks so much to Tara. I was very happy to have our debut foray for this podcast into heavy metal. I'm open to doing more of it and different breeds of it. This one was perhaps easier for me than, say, doing The Scorpions or something like that, because it was only one album. So I got to listen to it a lot of times. Again, you can check out her album at taralynch.com. And hey, I hope you enjoyed this enough to want to hear some more of these interviews. Go subscribe to the podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I would very much also appreciate your words of recommendation posted as a review on the iTunes store or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this. So I think for my next episode, I'm going to finally release the interview I did at the end of last year with Pratik Kuhad, superstar of India. I had delayed that because he had a new album coming out, and I see it's out. So keep an eye on NakedlyExaminedMusic.com for that. And I've recorded several episodes since then with members of The Damned, with Soft Machine, some great solo artists, people that have written books, etc., so there are many glorious conversations ahead, but producing these things costs money. So I would really appreciate if you would go show that you are supporting what we're doing at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. I will be eternally grateful. If you have any suggestions about the show, possible guests, please email me at mark at nakedly examined music.com. And most of all, stay inspired, stay musical, keep on writing the songs or tickling the ivories or strumming the sheepskin or whatever the hell it is you do. Farewell, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off.